Every day, every day it's good to serve the Lord. We've been in a series for a few weeks on refuge. And I've asked a question every single week, and I'm going to ask it again. Do you consider yourself a person of refuge? That's the question. Do you consider yourself a person of refuge? You probably say, well, in some situations, sometimes. What I want you to do is step back and realize that you are a person of refuge if Christ dwells in you, right? That if he who, who lives in you is greater than he that's in the world, you're refuge. So we have to start thinking, seeing ourselves. That's why we study the word of God, because I want to be like Jesus. And he is of ever-present help in time of refuge. So we have spent four weeks in the Old Testament. And in three minutes, I'm going to bring everyone up to speed <laughs> before we jump into the New Testament. Let me show you this picture. The children of Israel are going into the promised land. God, by his divine hand, takes the Levites, who are one of the tribes. They have no inheritance. They don't get land. They are spread through 48 cities throughout Israel, the Levites. Six of these 48 cities are going to be special cities of refuge. Three on the east of the Jordan, three on the west of the Jordan. Moses picks the first three. The other three, Joshua is going to pick. These are special cities to combat the culture that existed in Egypt and the culture they were going into with the Philistines and the Amorites and the Jebusites and all these cultures who did not honor life, did not see life as precious. So these cities of refuge were if someone killed someone accidentally in this Eastern culture called uh, Goalism, that the avenger of blood, usually it was the, the uh, oldest son, would kill the person who accidentally killed the other one. And the, what God's grace was, was that they could go to one of these cities and be safe. That if someone killed someone accidentally, not premeditated murder, they could go into these cities and be safe. They could live there until the death of the high priest. No matter if the avenger of blood came, he couldn't touch them. This is a picture of Christ. In Hebrews 6, Jesus is, ref is referenced like a refuge, like this. So we've spent four weeks talking about these cities of refuge, how God set it up, all the beautiful pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. Well, I also need to look, we need to look, what is Christ looking like in the New Testament? What, how did he create refuge for his leaders? How did he impart refuge to a rough fisherman who grew up under Roman rule? Rule, excuse me, not rule, rule. How did he do this? Well, we find it in Luke 5, so turn there. Luke chapter 5. A very familiar story, but we're going to learn something new from the Word of God. Let's read 1 through 11. So it was as the multitude pressed about him, Jesus, to hear the Word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. This is the Sea of Galilee. It's also called Tiberias. It had three names. And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, this is Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've told all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets 
and their net was breaking. So they signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boat, both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, his fishing partners, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. Y'all know this story, or at least somewhat familiar with it. You've heard it before. Now, this is not the first encounter between Peter, who would be the leader of the twelve, between Peter, who would launch the New Testament church in Jesus. This is the third. The first one we find in John chapter 1. When John the Baptist is standing there with a couple of his disciples, one happens to be Peter's brother, Andrew, and he says, the Lamb of God. It was the second one. The first day he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John says, on the next day in John 1, the Lamb of God. And so the two disciples take off following Jesus. Well, Andrew goes and gets his older brother, Peter. He says, you got to come. So that's the first time Peter met, meets him. The second time he meets him while they're fishing, in a previous time in another gospel. And this is the third. This is the third, and you could say final, because after this, Peter follows Jesus full-time and goes into full-time ministry, which he'll be in for the rest of his life. Now, Jesus has to teach Peter, who's going to lead the twelve, to be refuge, and he's going to do it right here. So let's look at this. Verse 1, So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God. Every word out of Jesus' mouth is the eternal word of God. For sure, right? This is an uncomfortable situation. What happened was Jesus had departed trying to get a break the disciples are not fully formed, the group of 12. And he finds himself at, at the corner, and he's between a rock and a hard place. The water's behind him, and people are pressing in to hear the word of God. He's, he's, he's life itself. And they're pressing into him, and things are uncomfortable. You know, so many times in our life, strain, difficulty, that's always precedes refuge. When God's getting ready to build refuge and make refuge, there's always difficulty that precedes it. Number one in your notes. Strain is the predecessor to creating refuge. He was like that in the Old Testament. It's like that right here. You know, Jesus knew exactly where he was going. He knew where Peter was. Remember, this was the third meeting. He knew where he fished. He knew his fishing spots. Look, if you know somebody's fishing spots, you know them well, okay? Because that's usually like a, a serious kept secret. He knew where he would be, and he finds him there, and he is going to bring the crowd right to Peter's door. Right on top of Peter, right in his business, right in the middle of his, his physical work and his occupation. It's not a bad thing. He's going to bring the cow right there, and he's going to stand between his occupation and between his future. Oh, and he's going to fork the road for Peter beautifully. He said, now you're going to choose which one you're going to be. And they're all right there, displayed before Peter. Peter becomes a part of this story. 
Strain is the predecessor to creating refuge. You know that perseverance is commanded by God. It is a command of the living God, and it's found in Revelation. If this is the end times, you think it is, good. This is your scripture. Revelation 3.10. This is to the faithful church. Because you have, what does it say? Kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell in the earth. Perseverance is a part of the command of God. It's a part of Christianity. Amen? We need to understand that. We feel pressure or strain, and we want to back away from it. Don't do that. Don't ever back away when the applause stops. Oh, don't do that. You say, this is what God's told me to do. This is what he called me to do. This is who he's made me. I'm going to persevere because he's with me. Because you've kept my command to persevere. Let's keep looking at this in Luke. So the stage is set for Peter's life. With this crowd pressing in, with his boats right there, the stage is set. Verse 3. Jesus sees the boats, and then he pulls Peter into his destiny. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes. You know, if you project on water, you get a little amplification. It bounces. It was smart, just practically speaking. He could back up a little bit. He could get in the boat, and he could use it as an amplifier. But think about where he is now. This is a fishing boat. I got a little boat. I'm going to tell you, it don't smell so good. And it's not because my kids have been in there. I wish I could blame it on them. But it's because I have, like, you know, dead shrimp, and the piece falls off and hits the side of the boat, and you don't know it. And then you park it and you go into the room like, whoa, what is that? Dead shrimp for a week in a boat. That's a bad smell. This is a very humble pulpit, isn't it? This is a very ordinary thing. A dirty fishing boat. Now, Peter has two views here he can go. One, he can say, because remember, he didn't ask his servant to do it. He says, I want you to do it, Peter. I'm in the boat. You push off. You're going to keep the boat where it needs to be so I can proclaim the word. So he says, all right. Peter can say, look, I'm not only management. I did this when I was young. I, I own these things. Hold on. Let me call a servant to take care of this. Right? He doesn't do that, does he? He takes care of it. Or he could say, and this is where a lot of us fall into line right here. This boat is not worthy of Jesus. It's not good enough. And I shouldn't, and it should not be, I, I should not be the person God can use. Not my stuff, not my ordinary, not my fishing boat, right? We've done this before, haven't we? You see, God wants to use your ordinary. Because when he steps into it, that dirty fishing boat becomes a holy place, a place where what, what does it say? So they could hear the word of God go out in that dirty fishing boat. Number two on your notes. Allow God to use your ordinary. For refuge. 
this is what's good. We all have ordinary, right? We have a little spectacular. I don't think I have any spectacular in my house. The kids have destroyed everything to ordinary. So I have ordinary, and so do you. This is what God wants to use. He wants to use our ordinary. It's him that makes it extraordinary, supernatural, amazing. He just wants the ordinary. He could have chosen anything. A fishing boat? Come on, Jesus. I want to make refuge in an ordinary place so everyone can reach it. So everyone understands it's not Peter in the stained glass that we see in old churches. It's Peter in the fishing boat. Oh, I can relate to that. I can be used by God now. Allow God to use your ordinary. I love the way one theologian says it, Morris. Note the many unexpected pulpits in which Christ preached. I want to be used like that. I know you do too. Unexpected, ordinary, every day. I want to show you a scripture in John 9, chapter 6. We know the story. Jesus has got a big group there. They've been listening to him all day. They're hungry. They're far from a town. They need to eat. Jesus, disciples say, look, you've got to send these people away. Jesus says, no, you're going to take care of it. God, I can't make a place of refuge right here. i got nothing. What are we supposed to do? You just give me what you have. Don't worry about the rest. Verse 9. There was a lad there who had five, what does the Bible say? Barley loaves. There are no unnecessary details in the Bible. Barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Verse 10. Then Jesus said, make the people to sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. I'm going to tell you, normally this is a rocky area in a region. But the sovereign hand of the living God looking outside of time grew a big, soft, comfortable field. So those thousands of men, women and children, toddlers and babies could sit down in a comfortable place. Because God said, I want seed to grow there. I've commanded it because this will be a place of refuge for these people. Grass was growing there. That's not even my point, though. <laughs> there was much grass in that place. So that men sat down in the number of about 5,000, verse 11. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks... He distributed them to his disciples and the disciples to those sitting likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Barley and thanks. There's no unnecessary details in the Bible. Barley was the most common, least desired grain. They had like fine wheat. That was what the princes ate. They had common wheat. Then they had something else. I don't remember the name. And then barley was on the bottom. In fact, only high-end barley people ate. The, the old junky barley was for animals. That is as ordinary as it gets. It is barley. I've had barley times in my life, right? You may have a barley morning. You just got here. You just crawled in. You may have something from a child on you you're not even aware of. Let me tell you what Jesus does with barley. It's as ordinary as it gets, and he takes it. And he lifts it to the Father and he thanks God for it. 
He thanks God for it, and then he does a miracle. Amen? Let God use those ordinary things. Well, I'm not good at speaking. I'm not good at reading. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. Ordinary things God can use in extraordinary ways. Yesterday was something in Acadiana called uh, Family Adventure Day. It's this big event, and you, you pay a certain amount of money, and you can go to like 40 different venues from cookies with kids or, or celeb, uh, jump stations, uh, what is it, Sky Zone, or all these different things all over Acadiana. So we drove around. We hit like 12 of them. I mean, we were exhausted by the end of the day. One of them was downtown, and it was the mounted police of Lafayette. They have six horses, and they're training a seventh. I didn't know they had, they had this, and they uh, do all the crowd control for all the festivals and stuff. You need a horse sitting up 10 feet high. It's important for crowd control. Where we went downtown, and we were watching one of their presentations, and they talked about how they train these horses. They're, the, their horses are half thoroughbred and half Pergeron, big horses, 17 hands. Uh, wide and thick horses, huge, 1,600-pound animals. And horses, because I used to ride horses and I worked a little bit with them, you know, they're skittish. Y'all know you're running on horses. I mean, you can do a snap and, and their ears are jerk. They're just skittish animals. You throw something at their feet, they'll jump around. You know, they talk about not walking behind a horse because they're, they're, that's the way they're, they are. They're just tense because they're a prey animal. Even though they're big, they're not, a, they're not a, um, like a wolf. They're not like a, a carnivore that's a, that's a predator. They're a prey. So I want to show you a short video of this presentation. Now, this horse can do amazing things. They watched it. They did pushing barrels, and they, could knock, they had a, like a, a dummy, like a bad guy, and pushed him out of the way, and moving balls and all this. Turn that video up. You just watched something extraordinary. They have to counter-train that animal to do the opposite of what it's designed to. They said their brain's like a pecan, left and right side of the brain, it's separated. And they have to train each side to do contrary to the way that animal is functions. Because normally, loud noises like that trash they put together, jerking it all over their head at their feet, hitting it, would make them go bonkers. But they have so trained with something so simple. He said, we have a high-tech device to train this animals. And he pulls out a bag of trash. That's what he said. I was like, look at this. See, that's what God wants to do. He wants to take even the junky, trashy things in your life, the most simple, ordinary things like a fishing boat, and he wants to do that to you. And the whole crowd, all of us, contrary to that animal's ability, contrary to this fallen nature, the Spirit of God comes on the inside of me and says, I'll use you to do amazing things. And all the crowd cheered and said, oh my goodness, I can't believe that horse can do that. Amen? The ordinary. That's the way he wants to use you. Let him do it. They said they worked with that horse for months. 
first 20 feet away, 30, 10, 10 feet away, and then, you know, one bottle, then two, and then he could handle the feet, but he couldn't do the head. It was this process of God creating a 1,600-pound piece of muscle that our children literally went and pulled on, and kids were petting it and playing with it. That was the strongest. If you've been around horses, they are in solid muscle. They're so strong. Amazing animals. That thing was so gentle. It had so much refuge. I trusted my kids pulling on it. That's a miracle, right? That's amazing training. That's what God wants to make you. That's what he wants to do with you. That's what he wants to do with me. No matter what's going on or the issues, you are refuge because he's in you. He is that picture. That's who he is. Is that true? Can we go to him in any mess or situation, grab on him, pull on him? Is there anything we can do that bothers and rocks God off his throne? Absolutely not. And that's who he wants us to be. Amen? All right. This is what he's creating in Peter. Because Peter is going to be the one who launches the New Testament church. And he is going to have refuge in him, in every part of him. And he's going to be able to give refuge to people and train leaders like that and create this culture. That's what God's doing here in Luke 5. All right, so we're right here. Verse 5. But Okay, so he, um, he stops speaking. He says, launch out into the deep, let down your nets. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night. But Simon answered and said to him, Master. He's going to tell him, I don't think this is going to work. He's going to tell him, I don't know how this is going to happen. Look, I know more about fishing than you do. I know you're, you're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. But the reason he obeys, the reason he does it is because of that first word. Normally, all throughout the New Testament, even when his disciples are talking to him, they don't use this word. In fact, it's very specific to Luke. He uses it over and over and over. The reason why Luke uses it over and over and over is Luke was not among the twelve, right? Luke is the generation after. Luke gives us so much of the Christmas narrative because Luke sat down with Mary and said, tell me every detail. Luke sat down with Peter and said, tell me every detail. That's the way Luke starts off. I, it says, I have, Luke says, I have a complete understanding of the events that happened because Luke sat down with Peter and said, tell me every detail. So this is how this information comes about. So he says, But Simon answered and said, Master, not rabbi, not teacher, which is the normal way people talk to Jesus. Or they just called him by his name, Yeshua. This is a very unique title Peter gives them, and he's the first one to give it to him. It means commander. It means leader. It is equivalent to our English word, boss. Hefe. The boss. Who owns the boat? Peter. This is Peter Incorporated Fishing Company, right? But he looks at Jesus and he says, Boss, I got 20 years of experience on this lake, but you're the boss. And at the boss's word... I'm going to do this. This is a huge shift for Peter. This is, a, this is the picture of surrender and falling on your knees. This is the picture of saying, look, I'm just a steward. I work here, but I know who the CEO is, right? That's what this picture is. Number three on your notes. 
A correct viewpoint is essential for miracles. Isn't it? Unless he looks at him and says, El Jefe, miracles ain't going to happen, right? Because he's not going to do what he tells him to do. The viewpoint, when we come to our friend, absolutely. Our Savior, yes. Our Lord, our guide, yes. We come to him and we say, Commander, leader. And we know that is the right viewpoint. Amen? Tell me this. How can a 125-pound police officer with a whistle in his hand put his hand up at an 18-wheeler driver driving a 40-ton 18-wheeler and go, and that guy stops? How is that possible? Authority, right? That guy could drive that truck through a cement wall. But he knows that 125-pound cop is not just that 125-pound cop, right? It, that man represents authority. The whole police department, the whole state government, the whole federal government. He understands authority. That's what's going on right here with Peter. When we understand that, God can build refuge. Oh, he can build refuge, can't he? Let's keep looking here. But Simon answered and said, Master, we understand the right viewpoint for refuge. Let's keep reading in verse 5. We have toiled all night and caught nothing. Now I'm going to tell you, as a fellow fisherman, I understand the man's woes. I understand his hurt, his pain. Drove two hours. Water didn't look good. Another hour, 30 minutes in the boat three, four hours of fishing, nothing. I, I understand his pain. I'm not just, well, I guess it was hard. I, I've lived it, okay, as a fellow fisherman. We've toiled all night and caught nothing. This is a failure statement. This is Peter's wheelhouse, right? He does this for a living. He owns more than one boat. He's done it for a while, so he's been successful, right? We know he's been successful in this. Maybe you're good at accounting, you're good at management, you're good at this, you're an IT guy, you're whatever you do. This is him in failure at what is his bread and butter. This is LeBron missing the layup when there's these wide open. This is failure, but he does not stay with failure. He doesn't stay there. Can we identify with failure, right? We've all had failure, even in our bread and butter, even in the things we're good at, just like Peter, caught nothing. Nevertheless, or nonetheless, at your word, I will let down this net. Number four in your notes. Don't let past disappointments determine future decisions. Lord, I tried to love someone and they hurt me. You still obey this. Lord, I tried really hard and it didn't turn out right. You still obey the word of God. Amen? You don't change from obeying our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you a personal story. 
Let me see this mess up here on the front row. Many of you know I did missions for seven years short term from a week to two months and then set up trips and was able to bring hundreds and hundreds of missionaries, teenagers, adults all over the world. And wonderful seven years of my life before school, after school, during, met my wife there. I don't know if you know, the first couple years, I really stunk at it. I was, it was really unsuccessful in my view. And it, it really was even statistically. You know, I went to Australia for a month. I couldn't hardly put the team together. No one got saved for over two weeks. No one. No one. Preached to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and dramas and da-da-da-da-da. No one. Had a little bit of success at the end. The Lord said, go to Peru the next month. Spent a couple months there. It was rough. We did a crusade. Look, South America is a much easier, open to the gospel. We did a crusade that flopped. I mean, it flopped. Are you this supposed to be encouraging, Stephen? <laughs> I'm getting there. Now, see, the Lord told me to do it. And if I would have stopped in year one, or year two, or year one of this church, or year two, now I can't see down the road in ten years, but see, I can see this. These are missionaries, many of which I met, met on the field. You support the Nelsons and Dominican, help build this church in India. You support missions in South Africa. You built a church in Mexico. Well, I'm unorganized. Goodness, I'm not an organized person. All of this is because I said my current failures will not determine my future decisions. We gave $21,000 to missions as just an example because 18, 19 years ago, I said I will not make my future decisions based on this current circumstance. I will make it on what God told me to do. Amen? This never, never would have existed without those hard years of saying, okay, nevertheless, Lord, I've been doing this all night. I even went to school for it. I'm a pro at it. I got a mortgage on those boats. Nevertheless, at the carpenter's word, a landlocked guy who spends his time building yokes, most probably, for ox, I will obey. Amen? Come on, Come on now. This is our life. This is it. Can you organize that for me? You are much better at organization. <laughs> I'm getting in trouble later. <laughs> Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Jesus has two statements in this story. The first one, launch out into the deep and let down your nets, is in red. And then we read verse here. Excuse me, we read in verse 10. And Jesus answered, and Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Now we have to understand the magnitude of this statement. Because it is this single statement that will propel and direct Peter's life as the Word of God does, especially when he speaks to you specifically about doing something. 
There's this written logos word, and then there's rhema. God says, I want you to do this. It will propel his life through all of his failures and through everything. Now remember, there is no disciple in the Bible who has the recorded failures of, that are recorded in, for all time, recorded failures, as Peter, right? We know all of Peter's failures. So we have to remember these when we look at them real quickly. A few verses on the screen. This is Matthew 16. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. That's as fell as you can get. You cannot fail any more than that. You are offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man, because he was trying to stop the cross. Nope, that is, that is such a failure. What about right before the cross? We find it in Luke. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words of the Lord, and he said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Y'all know this famous statement. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Right? We know these stories. But in the back of Peter's mind, what was going on? I know what was consuming him. Failure, grief, missed opportunity, angry at himself, all of these things, right? We're human, we get it, we messed it up. But there was one other statement rolling in the back of his mind. There was one other sentence rolling in his mind in year one, in year two, in year three, when the, Jesus was crucified, when he was buried, when he resurrected, there's still one last statement rolling in his mind. It's this one. Because this is his call to ministry and life. It doesn't have to do with being ministry is the greatest thing. It has to do with this is what God told him to do. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. That's rolling in his mind, isn't it? Isn't it? The words of Christ are keeping him right there through all his failures. Number five on your notes. God's word keeps you secure through all failures. Do not be afraid, Peter. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Let's stand up. You read two of the valley times of Peter, right? When he denied, when, when, he, um, when he tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross. He said, nope, get behind me. And then we denied him three times. There's a whole sermons in and of themselves. You see the valleys. The word of God held him. Do not be afraid. I've called you, I've destined you to be a fisher of men. We all have valley times. And it's the word of God to us. It's the, the anchors that hold us in those valleys. Maybe the Lord spoke something to you years ago. Maybe you have a life scripture, right? That's what's ho what holds us through the valleys. You need those. But I want to tell you something about the Word of God. It, you don't stay in the valley with the Word of God. It will push you. It will propel you. 
It will give you strength when you don't have any. It will say, get up and move because I said to. We always think about Peter in those difficult times and good. But we need to remember that that valley was only temporary and yours are too. Your difficulty, your valleys are temporary. God's making you a refuge. I'm going to quickly read just the first few chapters of Acts because to do it all, to talk about Peter, would take a whole other sermon. Let's just look at this. He's through the valley. The word of it to him, do not be afraid. I will make you catch men. He's through the valley. This is just a few. Just a few. Let's read these. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, a number of them was about 120 and said, he preached the gospel, 3,000 were saved, the church was birthed. 2.14. But Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words. Let me back up to that first verse. The first one is when there were 11 disciples. I don't have 11 fingers. There. 11 disciples, they had to have 12. It was Peter who stood up and said, we're going to pray. God's going to call one of these two men. It was Mathis. He called him. Before he launches this great evangelistic work, he fixes his church. He had to have 12. That was the will of God. There was only 11. Peter stood up and said, God's going to make it clear who it's supposed to be. Then we go to 2.14. That's the great 3,000 being saved. He stood up, he stands up, and he preaches the word. Because in the front of his mind now is do not be afraid. I'm going to cause you to catch men. Do not be afraid. I'm going to cause you to do this. It carried him through his life. Next scripture. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you think so intently at us as though by our own power, Godless, we have made this man walk? It's got nothing to do with us. Let me tell you what it's got to do with. Luke 5. Do not be afraid, Peter. I'll cause you to catch men. Next one. They laid hands on them and put them into custody until the next day. It was already evening. Now he goes to jail for all the preaching. Keep going. Back to a valley. However, of those who heard the word, believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Hours. Come on, let's go to Jesus. Come on. Maybe you haven't thought of yourself like this. Think of yourself like this. Maybe there's an ordinary thing that God wants to use powerfully. Something so ordinary in your life or something you're doing that seems so unimportant.
You're a new creation in Christ. Maybe you're tired and straining. You keep doing it. He's making you a great refuge.
Jesus could take care of all the physical needs. Jesus could take care of all of his weaknesses and fear and sin. He said, oh, I'm a sinful man. I'll take care of that. You follow me because I'll make you a refuge. It's my plan. It's my purpose for you. All that are called according to my name. So let's step into it. Let's believe him. Let's ask him as we close here. Lord, we thank you that our salvation is set in you. Oh, Savior Jesus, how great you are. Lord, make us a refuge. It's who Jesus was. Jesus is who you made your disciple Peter to be. And we are your disciples. Thank you, Lord. And you are making us people of refuge in any situation. Use the common. Use the ordinary. We know that you're making us refuge to bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. Now, let's praise him.